Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for another hour as we are most weekday afternoons. Uh, the reason we're live is so that you know, don't only have to listen to me. Of course, you never have to. Anyway, you can change the channel, but you can listen and talk back to me because we have a phone number for you. And if you want to call in with a question about the Bible or Christianity or an objection to it uh, or a disagreement with something you've heard me say, well, you're welcome to call. That's why we're here an hour every weekday afternoon. And let me give you a phone number so you can make use of it. The number is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, once again, I'm broadcasting from the Sacramento uh, area, and, and tonight is the last of my several times speaking here in the Sacramento area. I'll be speaking in Auburn. For those who live in Sacramento, they might not think of that as the Sacramento area, but because it's a little bit out of town, but for everyone else it is the Sacramento area. So if you're in, in that listening range, uh, you may wish to pay attention to the fact that we have a Q&A gathering at a church building tonight in Auburn, and all the information about the time and place can be found at our website, thenarrowpath.com, thenarrowpath.com. And uh, look at the tab that says announcements, and that will give the the address. Uh, you know, I I spoke yesterday at North Point uh, Community Church in uh, Fresno, and that was that was really a wonderful thing. I got to speak for three hours on the four views of Revelation. We had a really big crowd show up, and it was really great to meet so many uh, listeners in the Fresno area. Uh, because we've only been on the air in Fresno for a relatively short time. I, I don't remember exactly how long. Couldn't be much more than a year. And, uh, and, and yet we did get to, I got to meet a lot of people who listen and who've read the books and so forth. So uh, those of you who were there, uh, who were listening, uh, I, I definitely appreciate you coming out and, and my being able to meet you. And uh, I will be down in uh, Clovis again uh, tomorrow night as I'm making my way back home to Southern California. And uh, anyway, tonight I am in Auburn at 6.30, a Q&A. If you're interested in uh, coming out, just go to thenarrowpath.com, look under the tab that says Announcements, and you'll find out how to get there and when. And i uh, love to see you there. Okay, our lines are full right now, so we're going to go and talk to, uh, first of all, Victor calling from Denver, Colorado. Victor, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Um, I have a quick question here. I just wrote it out, so I'll just read it to you. That's fine. Um, I listened to your excellent verse-by-verse uh, -verse study on Matthew 13, 31 through 33, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. Um, I must admit that you steered me straight because I was under the influence of a pastor in the Denver area who actually wrote part of a book that he wrote. He talked about it, and he states that the birds in the mustard seed uh, parable that nest in the trees are evil corruption, and he claims that the the stuff in the, uh, I'm sorry, the meal. The leaven. The, the leaven in the meal. The leaven, yeah. yeah the, in the meal are uh, 
since there are three of them, that they represent Judaism, Catholicism, and Protestantism, and how they, uh, due to the traditions of man, uh, were corrupted and corrupted Christianity. I'd, I'm curious of your thoughts on that. Obviously, yeah. you don't agree with that. Well, I've heard it all my life. It's, a, it's the dispensational explanation. Uh, for those who don't know the parables, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a, a mustard seed, that though it's the smallest of, of all seeds, once it's planted, it grows into a great tree, and it shelters the birds of the air. And then he said the kingdom of God is like leaven or yeast that's put into three measures of dough and it, until it leavens the whole thing. Now, dispensationalism sees this differently than any other theological system does, because obviously those parables, unless someone tells you otherwise, are going to give you the impression that this is an optimistic picture of the kingdom of God. It starts out small, like a mustard seed, and grows into a very uh, considerable uh, plant. Uh, it becomes a shelter for birds and things like that, and so uh, that's positive. And then, of course, the idea that a little bit of leaven in a lump of dough can grow and affect the whole thing, if that's what the kingdom of God is like, obviously that would seem to be a very positive picture. But the dispensationalists believe that the, the, the future of the church is not promising. They believe that in the end, before the rapture, the church will be largely corrupted. And uh, they believe that the Great Commission will not be fulfilled by the church, but by the Jews after the church is gone. They believe the church will leave this world in failure, uh, like a dog whipped and its tail between its legs, a failure church, 2,000 years, we've never gotten the job done, so we'll be raptured out. And then in less than seven years, uh, the, the remnant of the Jews, the 144,000, will evangelize the whole world better than we ever did in 2,000 years. This is the dispensational view. So they have to say, uh, Jesus is depicting the church as being corrupted in the end. So instead of seeing it as a positive, that the mustard seed grows into a great tree, they say, yeah, but it is a great tree, but it's corrupted by birds being in it. Now, why would they say birds would corrupt it? Well, the reason is because earlier in the chapter, in one of the earlier parables, the parable of the sower, some seed fell on hard ground and did not penetrate, and the birds came, and they ate the seed. Now, when Jesus explained that parable, he said the seed is the word of God, the word of the kingdom. And, uh, you know, if it falls on hard ground, that, that's when the word of God is not understood by the audience. And the devil comes and takes away the word so it bears no fruit. So the birds taking the seed from the hard ground where it doesn't penetrate is said to be like the devil taking the word of God out of the mind it doesn't understand when they hear it. Well, fair enough. But my pastor, who was a dispensationalist, taught me when I was young, there's a law of Bible interpretation called the law of uh, exegetical constancy, which is a big word for a law that doesn't really exist. But the, it, allegedly, the law says that if you find a certain symbol used at one point in a parable or in the Bible, then uh, that, that symbol has to mean the same thing all the way through. And they do the same thing with the leaven, because leaven is bad sometimes. It's when Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Or when Paul was talking about... Um, he was talking about uh, fornication in the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5. He said a little leaven leavens a whole lump, meaning a little bit of sin permitted to, to remain will corrupt the whole church. So, yeah, leaven in some contexts represents evil. And birds in certain contexts can represent evil too. However, there is no such law of exegetical constancy. Jesus is referred to as a lion 
in Revelation, and the devil's referred to as a lion in First Peter five. So, you know, if we say, well, if if the devil's called a lion, then then a lion must only refer to evil things, and so therefore Jesus must be evil too, because he's like a lion. That's of course absurd. Even more so, uh, the the term children of the kingdom, which is found in the parable of the wheat and the tares, is used of good people, of, that is of Christ people, when it's they are the good seed among which tares have been sown. Jesus says the good seed are the children of the kingdom, and the tares are the children of the of the evil one. So the Christians, those in the kingdom, are said to be the the children of the kingdom. Yet in another place, for example, Matthew 8, Jesus talks about how uh, Gentiles from the east and west will come sit down in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the children of the kingdom will be cast out. And by that he means those who were naturally expected to be the children of the kingdom. The Jews, by rejecting Christ, failed to come in. But interestingly, the Jews that are cast out in Matthew 8 are called the children of the kingdom. And the Christians who are saved, as opposed to the children of the devil, are called the children of the kingdom. Obviously, you can't say that because a certain phrase or image is used in one place that you just rubber stamp it every time it occurs. You have to use your brains once in a while when you're reading the Bible. In fact, I'd like to advocate using your brain the whole time that you're reading the Bible. And it's very clear in a parable about seeds where birds eat the seeds, that the birds are a threat to the farm. They're a threat to the farmer's success. They are a negative in that story. With reference to a farmer and his seeds, birds pose a threat. With reference to a tree and birds lodging in its branches, birds are not a threat. In fact, birds belong there. And there are three similar parables or, or visions in the Old Testament where a good king is likened to a tree with the birds nesting in its branches and the woodland creatures uh, taking shelter under its leaves. And that's a good image. It's a positive image. Uh, one of them, of course, is when Nebuchadnezzar is likened to that in Daniel 4. In another case, uh, uh, the king of, uh, let's see, I believe it's the king of Tyre, is likened to that over in Ezekiel 31. And then in Ezekiel 17, even the kingdom of God is likened to a tree. And in all three of those cases, the tree is a good thing. And it's partly good because it provides shelter for birds and other creatures, it says. So, so Jesus uses the same image. He's not saying that birds in the tree is a problem. Birds are not a problem in a tree. They are a problem to a farmer who doesn't want them eating his seeds. That's why he, make, he puts up a scarecrow. But, uh, you know, birds are not always the same in relation to different scenarios. Likewise, the leaven. They say, well, Jesus used the word leaven to speak of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the doctrines of the Pharisees. And Paul referred to leaven as sin in Corinth. Yes, that's true. They did. And sin does act like leaven. Sin is that one of those things that has a dynamic effect on its surroundings and spreads and it infects. But Jesus said the kingdom of God also is like leaven that way. Jesus did not say the kingdom of God is like three measures of dough into which some nefarious person put uh, some leaven. He said, no, the kingdom of God is like leaven that is put into three measures of dough. So the leaven doesn't represent something intruding into the kingdom of God. The leaven represents the kingdom of God itself, which is itself intruding into the world and having an impact on the world. So, uh, you know, the dispensational explanation is totally uh, without, uh, frankly, exegetical uh, value. And that's that's my response to it. 
So you have also heard of, uh, have you heard other pastors refer to those three measures as being that particular, that particular detail, I don't remember. I think that pastor may have made that one up, or he may have got it from someone. But the, the idea that the leaven represents corruption being put into the church is a standard dispensational position, and contrary to the common sense understanding of the passage. But, yeah, the pastor that said, well, the three measures stand for something or another, well, maybe, uh, you know, there's no reason to say that. Jesus didn't compare the three measures with anything. He didn't identify them as representing anything except a large amount of dough into which a small amount of leaven needs place. The point he's making is that leaven has a disproportionate impact uh, in terms of its volume on, on the society it's put in. The kingdom of God was planted in Jerusalem uh, at, on the day of Pentecost, and it has had an outsized impact on the world over the past 2,000 years. So that's, that's the point that Jesus is making. All right. <clears throat> Let's talk to Cody from Vancouver, Washington. Cody, welcome to The Narrow Path. Hi, Steve. Uh, this is in reference to uh, Luke 20, or 17, 20 through 21. Uh-huh. I listened to a lot of your uh, by verses and, and tapes and, and old uh, recordings from your this TV show or this uh, radio show. And <clears throat> I, other than theological, I, I still can't wrap my head around why you think it was misinterpreted and that he couldn't be talking to, a Jesus couldn't be talking to the Jews this way. And I've looked at all kinds of translations, all the way back to a, the Hannah Papyrus, uh, Papyrus 75 from 200 B.C., which is a Alexandrian text-type papyrus. And they all say and toss, it says and toss throughout. And I'm just wondering if there's something that you may believe or have found that I haven't heard yet. Well, you say you've listened to what I say about it, but then you, you represent me saying something I don't say that as far as I know. What, what do you mean that this has been uh, – what, what, what is it you think I've said about this passage? Well, in, in, in your recordings and from your radio shows, you say that um, you think it was misinterpreted. By whom? Poorly. By whom? Uh, that's just what you said. Well, the, no. the, well, the interpretation okay. – should. Do you mean the translation? Is, you mean the translation? I guess what you should say, I, I believe your point of view is that it should say um, not inside or within, but it should say in your midst. Is that oh, correct? that verse, that one verse. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. You think okay, it, it so in other words, the statement, the sta- I thought you were talking about the longer passage, and I was seeing something wrong. No, uh, the kingdom of God sorry. is within you. The King James Version says the kingdom of God is within you. Every other translation in the world says the kingdom of God is in your midst. And the reason is because you is plural. It's a plural you. So the kingdom of God is within the group. It's, it's in their midst. And, the, and the, the very word that is used there can mean either one, if you're talking to an individual and say, you know, your, your lunch is within you because you ate it a moment ago. Well, then, then obviously it means you're, you're referring inside to of a bone. I'm talking about the verb uh, or the um, the preposition there. It does. It can mean in, in the sense of in an individual, or it can mean in in the sense of in a crowd. So uh, if you know, I, if I said um, uh, my 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 family is here in the room, uh, I, if I say it to a group of people, and my my wife is here within you, uh, I don't mean she's inside anybody. I mean she's within the crowd here. And well, when I Jesus said the kingdom that. of God is within you. Okay, so then that's why I, that's my answer. 
but he uses the word and toss. And okay. you know, we even have an example in Matthew twenty three twenty six where he says and toss and ekta, which means inside and outside. And oh. I think Luke, whoever wrote the the book of Luke, could have, if he wanted to say exactly what you're saying, could use some other words, and certainly he did inside the book of Luke and in Acts. And but in this particular uh, verse, he used and toss. Okay. Now, is this the result of your own research? Yeah, I'm going around. Okay, okay, fine. So, so, so you're getting your information from what? Reading a lexicon or two? Yeah, the, the Blue Letter Bible, all the way back to like the Codex Sinaiticus. Um, well, the Codex. Wait, 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 wait. The Codex Sinaiticus does not use the word "in" or "in your midst." It uses it's Greek. It's not English. We're talking about the English translations of the word. We're not talking about what the word is in the Greek, I don't think there's much disagreement about what the word is in the Greek. We're talking about what does that word in the Greek mean in English. And I'm saying it means within or among or in your midst. It has those meanings. Uh, you may not be aware that Greek words sometimes have more than one possible uh, nuance in when we have English. Now, I would say this. If you're getting all your information from looking at uh, lexicons, fine. But you will find that the le lexicons would agree with what I say. That it can mean in or in your midst. I'm not sure if you're, you, it sounds like you're looking at ancient manuscripts, in which case all they're going to tell you is what the Greek word was. But we're not disputing what the Greek word is. I'm, I'm okay. I'm agree with you. The Greek word in, uh, in our Bible is the same in all the manuscripts as far as I know. Fine. Now the question is, what does that Greek word mean in English? And if you're saying, well, you know, I think it means in. Okay. It does in some cases. Does it ever mean in your midst? Yes, quite a few cases like that, too. That's why the lexicons recognize both meanings to the word. But the point is, it's interesting that every translation in the world in English that I know of, except for the King James, translates it in your midst or within you, because, or that is, in your midst or among you, because that's the meaning in the context. Jesus was not telling the Pharisees that the kingdom of God was inside of them. No, the devil was inside of them. He told them they were their father, the devil. Uh, so the kingdom wasn't inside of them. So, I mean, you can disagree if you want to. I'm not going to you know, try to force the matter. I'm trying to answer your objections uh, so that you don't have to be mistaken. But if you want to believe what you're saying, well, you're certainly welcome to believe it. That's, uh, I don't think you quite know even how to study it because it sounds like you're look, wanting to look back at the ancient Greek manuscripts to figure out how the English should be translated. And that's ancient Greek manuscripts were written before there was even an English language to, to, to be relevant to it. So those people who are, uh, you know, Greek scholars who, who, who also read English and translate into English, it just so happens that all of them seem to think that it refers to in your midst. And that, that's the only sense in which it makes sense in the context. Because Jesus is telling the Pharisees that there in the crowd right there where they were standing within them, among them, within the, mid, the midst of them, were the citizens of the kingdom of God, Christ and his disciples. And if he was telling the, the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is inside of you, well, that was a, certainly giving them a more optimistic evaluation than he did any other time. And I don't, think, I, don't think he, I don't think they entered the kingdom, and I don't think the kingdom entered them. So, I mean, you can disagree. I, don't, I, I expect people to disagree with me on many things. Although I would prefer to think that they have reasonableness and they know how to look into the subject to make a decision. But 
Obviously, not everyone can, but you're welcome to take that view. Uh, Kay from Las Vegas, welcome to the Narrow Path. Hi, Steve. How Hello? are you doing? Good. Hello? Can you hear me? That's why I'm Hello? asking you. Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, so- sorry. Um, yeah. Steve, it's good to talk to you again. Um, I just want to thank you for referencing, uh, talking about the book, The Wonders of Bible Chronology by Sarah Yes, by Morrow. Morrow. I got the mm-hmm. book. Oh, it's excellent. Isn't but it? But I have yeah. two questions that relate. Um, I'm quoting right now from the beginning of the book where he says, he's talking about Jeremiah 25.1. It says the fourth year of Jehoiakim, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar. At this point of time, God was preparing to bring in the era of Gentile dominion, the times of the Gentiles, for Nebuchadnezzar was the first of the appointed rulers, God-appointed God rulers of the world. I'm, my first question is, do you agree with that timetable? Well, yes. I mean, uh, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the first Babylonian king. Uh, but he was he was the founder of what was called New Babylon, and that's and and that's that's basically well. Okay, let me put it this way: I believe Assyria be, before Babylon had that range of power, Assyria also did, and and before that, Egypt was a pretty influential power. But Daniel was living at the time of Babylon, and the prophecies about the kingdoms that would transpire between Daniel's time. And uh, the Messiah, which are, of course, uh, cataloged in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 and in Daniel's vision in chapter 7, um, those, those kingdoms began with the kingdom of Babylon. Now, only because that's when Daniel lived. He's, uh, you know, from that time on, this is what this prophecy is about. It's not going to survey the past. There were other kingdoms before Babylon that had far-reaching influence but Babylon had the largest empire uh, in its time that, that any nation had had. And, of course, it was the kingdom that took Jerusalem into captivity, which means it, be, it was the beginning of the Gentiles' uh, dominion over, over the Jews, basically. And, and in Daniel's frame of reference, that would be a significant matter more than, say, uh, you know, Kingdoms existing and not having to do with the Jews, you know. So, I'm not. I'm not sure. It's been a while since I read that book, and I'm not sure exactly what he's arguing there. Uh, I did read the book years ago, but uh, yeah, I don't have any problem with what he said. But okay. I'm not sure if you're taking him. I don't know if you're taking him to mean that Babylon was the first kingdom to really, uh, you know, expand over the whole area and control a lot of uh, countries. No, Assyria would have been uh, before Babylon, but. But Assyria didn't have the same impact. They did take the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity in 722 B.C., but Jerusalem uh, and, you know, the Jewish people as a, as a people survived until the Babylonians took them into captivity in 586 B.C. Okay, thank you. So my second question is referencing Luke 21, where Jesus talks about Jerusalem would be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When mm-hmm. did that happen? Well, Jerusalem began to be, you mean when was it fulfilled, or when did Jerusalem begin to be trampled? Uh, however you want to answer. Okay. 
Well, I mean, Jesus is talking about the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. I mean, in, in verse well, 20, just, just a couple of verses okay. earlier than that, he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that her desolation is near. You know, I mean, he's telling his disciples, you'll see the armies coming to surround Jerusalem. And when you see that, you know, Jerusalem's going down. And he says, then he, he says, you know, flee to the mountains, which the Christians in Jerusalem did, actually. Uh, historically, we know that. And um, he said that Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, you could go two ways on that. Some people might say the times of the Gentiles just refers to that short period of time from the time that Jerusalem fell till the time the Romans left the desolated remains behind. That would only be a few, probably weeks or months, the times of the Gentiles. But I, I see the times of the Gentiles that he's referring to as the times that the Gentiles are, uh, as it were, the focus of God's historical activities instead of, as it had previously been, the time of the Jews. I mean, the Jews had been God's uh, focus of activity, essentially from Abraham's time until then. And then when Jerusalem was destroyed, then the focus was on the Gentiles and the Gentile mission. So I, that's kind of how I've seen it. So if, that's, if I'm right about that, then the times of the Gentiles have not ended yet because there's still evangelism going to the Gentiles. I see. So would you say that they would end when Jesus comes back? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. I believe that. Yeah, I believe that as long as there are Gentiles being uh, admitted into the kingdom of God, the times of the Gentiles have not ended. But then, you see, the times of the Gentiles there in Luke 21 is a, a phrase that's not used anywhere in Scripture. I mean, that's the only other place. The only place. There's no right. other place. And therefore, we don't have any Scriptures explaining what is meant by it. So we kind of have to use our instincts about it. We might be wrong, but my instincts would tell me it's the time that God is now dealing with the Gentiles rather than the Jews primarily. And those times, of course, are still going on, and I believe still will go on until Jesus returns. All right, I need to take a break here, but we have another half hour coming, so this is not the end. The Narrow Path is listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, you can write to The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593, or go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. I'll be right back. If you've been listening to The Narrow Path for very long, you know how much it has enhanced your study and understanding of Scripture and possibly your whole Christian life. Don't you think all your friends should benefit from the program as you have? You help to partner with us in impacting the body of Christ when you tell all your friends to listen to The Narrow Path. If you have not done so, visit the website thenarrowpath.com and discover all that is available for your learning pleasure. Welcome back to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour before we are done taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, or you have a difference of opinion from the host, this is the number to call, 844-484-5737. Again, 844-484-5737. Our next caller today is, let's see, it's going to be Rick from the state of Maine. Hi, Rick. Welcome. 
Yes, hi, Steve. Uh, thanks for taking my question. Um, sure. So just to give you a, a brief context uh, so you understand my question, I, I was recently listening to um, Dr. Leighton Flowers on the Internet, and I really enjoyed his ministry. And he, he, was, uh, he had a guest on, and they were talking about Hebrews 6. And um, uh, this guest, who has written some commentaries, he, he was uh, trying to go back to Hebrews 3, and, and he was saying that um, he was explaining the warning to these Israelites and how the Israelites had sinned um, in, in the wilderness, but Moses went to God on their behalf, and uh, they were forgiven, and they were still God's covenant people, he was saying. And um, God was still, like, you know, providing manna for them and, and just taking care of them. They were his covenant people. And I guess what my question is, is uh, he, what he was trying to point out was that they didn't lose salvation. And I'm, I am more, like, in line of thought with you on this, but I was wondering how, how would you um, explain the relationship between uh, Israelites who were in physical covenant relationship with God and the degree to which there might be overlap there mm -hmm. with uh, salvation. And okay. um, maybe you can just tell me uh, if that relationship relates to maybe the Pharisees in Jesus day and uh, were they kind of like in a similar, similar situation where they were in physical covenant with God, but not salvifically. Right. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, by the way, Dr. Layton flowers, uh, though we've never met face to face, we uh, we are uh, we respect each other a great deal. Uh, he is his most of his ministry is focused on debunking Calvinism, uh, but uh, he's also he's he's also a Baptist, and as a Baptist, he also believes in once saved always saved. And um, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for him, but I only know this because. Uh, people who know him and me both have, have tried to get us to debate that point, and uh, that might eventually happen. But I'm I'm not that interested in debating him because I, I you know I like being friends with him as I am. But and we probably would be even if we did debate it. But the point is that uh, to say that you know Israel, uh, God continued to be in covenant with them after the uh, golden calf incident, even though they had violated the covenant proves that they were still saved. Well, actually, um, they weren't. About 3,000 of them were put to death, and we have no reason to believe they were saved. The, the survivors that were loyal to God were saved, uh, and, and they made up the, the nation of Israel. But see, throughout all of Israel's history, there were, there were part of the nation that were faithful to God. They called, in, in the Old Testament, they called it the faithful remnant, the remnant of Israel. They were the ones who believed God. They were the ones who were, in reality, what the whole nation was supposed to be in theory. In theory, the whole nation was God's people. But in reality, most of the nation worshipped Baal and golden calves and Moloch and other things and, and were disloyal to God. But there was always a minority, a remnant, who were faithful. And they were the true Israel of God. Uh, they, uh, the others who were not faithful were still in the nation of Israel. And the nation was still chosen by God. But not not for salvation. Certainly, uh, there's no reason to believe that the unfaithful in Israel went to heaven when they died, although in their lifetime they were still part of the chosen people. But Israel wasn't chosen for salvation. Israel was chosen for a purpose. 
I mean, just read the promise that God made to Abraham. It, the purpose was that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Uh, there wasn't even a, specifically a promise that any of Abraham's seed would be personally saved, but they would be instrumental in bringing blessing, and that blessing is, of course, through Christ, to all the nations and families of the earth. Now, I'm not saying they weren't saved. I'm just saying the promise God made to Abraham had nothing to do with personal salvation, but with a mission of his race that would come from him to bring the Messiah and blessing to the world. And that's what they were chosen for. Now, when we think of chosen people, we might, we might think, oh, they were chosen for, for salvation. No, the whole nation of Israel was chosen for the purpose that, that Abram's seed was, that it was through Israel. And Jesus even said this. Jesus said this to the woman at the well. He said, salvation is of the Jews. Now, of course, many of the Jews themselves were not saved. The Pharisees, Jesus said, how can you avoid the condemnation of hell, you Pharisees? Uh, but on the other hand, they were part of the nation that was chosen. But you see, if we mistakenly think chosen means saved, then we're really uh, missing the whole point. The nation of Israel was not chosen to be saved, and a great number, uh, uh, perhaps a majority of them in history, were not saved. But they were still part of the chosen nation. Because this, the, what, the question has got to be, what were they chosen for? What do you mean they're chosen? They were chosen to be the nation that God would protect and keep around until the Messiah would come and would bring, you know, his blessing to the nations. Once that happened, of course, there was nothing else they were said to be chosen for. And therefore, they were to be absorbed into the Messiah's own uh, movement. They were supposed to accept their Messiah and be part of his movement. Some of them did, and they became the, the, the uh, founders of the church. Uh, the, the, the Israelites that didn't come in were the ones who were destroyed when the temple was destroyed and, and uh, you know, about a million of them were killed by the Romans and the, maybe another million or more were taken into captivity, uh, they weren't saved. They were lost. Jesus said to them, if you don't repent, you'll all perish, you know. So there's no suggestion in the Bible that being part of Israel means you're part of the saved people in the sense that, you know, God's people who are going to heaven. Uh, and therefore, to say that God kept Israel around even though they broke his covenant. Well, that's true. He was very forgiving. Very forgiving. He gave them more chances. But in the, in the particular case of, uh, let's just say, uh, the great provocation mentioned in Hebrews chapter 3, where the, the 12 spies came back and said, well, it's a great land, but the giants are there. And the people said, oh, we don't want to go in then. Well, only, uh, actually only two of the Jews there ended up going into the promised land the, uh, and the, of the older generation. Then the younger generation went in. But the older generation all died in the wilderness. There's no reason to believe they were saved. But the nation continued. You see, the nation is a multi-generational entity that has some people in it who are saved, in the spiritual sense of that word, and some who weren't. So to say that God kept the Jews around or kept the Israelites around as a nation is irrelevant to the question of whether somebody will go to heaven if they're an apostate. Because the apostate Jews, there's no promise that they would. And there's no promise that apostate Christians would. So that's where I would disagree on the, I guess, on the parallel. I don't think there's any parallel there to the plan that God had for Israel to bring the Messiah into the world. There's not a parallel between that and having an individual be on good terms with God at death and go to heaven. Yeah, well, thank you. And I, I think that uh, he was trying to make the connection with 
Moses didn't get to go into the promised land, and so them not entering doesn't mean that they weren't saved. And I understand that, but I, I also think he was taken for granted that um, just because God was providing for them, that that meant and th- that he was in a covenant relationship with them as a nation, that um, that meant that they were still saved. And the Pharisees um, in the New Testament, that always troubled me a little bit. Well, I understand that they clearly were not you know, faithful followers of God because of everything that Jesus had to say in John the Baptist and like, you know, woe to you. And, mm-hmm. um, but here were people who, uh, they intellectually, they, they believed God. They were devoting their life to learning about him and teaching him. But yet, uh, Jesus points out that, you know, clearly that they weren't in right standing with God. They clearly right. well, weren't faithful right. in well, their heart. If Jesus made anything clear at all, it's that the Pharisees were not really the people that God was accepting and uh, and that they would be rejected because they're, they were rejecting Christ and because they were rejecting Moses, too, he said in John chapter 5. So, so yeah, I mean, the Pharisees were part of the chosen people, too, just like Korah and Judas Iscariot and Caiaphas. They were all part of the chosen people. They were part of the Israel, which was chosen to bring the Messiah into the world and did. Um, but... To say that someone was one of the chosen people has no bearing on whether they had a relationship with God that was acceptable or would uh, carry them into eternal life. All right, I appreciate your call, and we'll talk next to Jim from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Jim. Welcome. Hello, Jim. Okay, Jim's not there. Somebody's just breathing heavily into the phone. Okay, let's talk to Eddie from Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, Eddie, welcome. Hi, thank you, Steve. Um, uh-huh. Can I just give you a little background of, for my question to make sense, please? Uh, okay, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I grew up a Muslim. I grew up in Islamic neighborhood under Islamic rule and law. I came to America. I found a lady. I got married. I became a Christian. I started to teach at many churches. I made a prominent name for myself. My name is not Eddie, by the way. I just have to tell you that. Sure. Long story short, I, um, I I I should have treated my wife better. After 22 years, uh, we went through a hard divorce. She mm. took a lot of my money away um, and uh, left me with the kids. I'm now taking care of three boys um, and went to another country. Now, how long will my punishment by the Lord continue for? And I think I've lost my salvation due to that because I've been sinning like crazy, and I don't like it. Yes. I, I want to go well, back to the Lord, but mm-hmm. I hate myself away. Right. Well, as far as your divorce goes, I'm, I'm not going to just assume that that's the punishment of the Lord. Um, you might have been a poor husband. I don't know. But even if you've been a good husband, I, 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 these things could have happened. To, to the way I was raised up, I was an okay husband. But according to the American rules and laws, right. I mean, it, I, I was yeah. not a good husband. Right, because under Islamic uh, law, you could be considerably more cruel and be considered normal, I'm sure, but not under Christian or American ideas about uh, husbandry. Uh, well, all I can say is that, um, you know, we do suffer consequences for doing us wrong. But we often some, suffer similar consequences when we don't do wrong. The book of Job is very clear on that. You know, uh, Job suffered so many things that his friends uh, who were 
Eastern moralists and had, you know, basically a, a religious philosophy about such things. They said, well, you're suffering so much, God must hate you. He must be angry. You must, must have done something wrong. And Job said, you know, I always thought that way myself until this happened to me, but I didn't do anything wrong. This just happened while I was serving God and doing the right thing. And, um, and, and the book of Job makes it very clear that it's overly simplistic to say, well, disaster has struck in your life. Therefore, God is punishing you for something. That's, that might be an Islamic way. It might even be a Jewish way of looking at things. It's not a Christian way because Jesus was crucified, which is a very terrible thing to happen, but he didn't do anything wrong. And in, in the book of Acts, the apostles, some of them were killed. They were chased. They were beaten. They were imprisoned. And they, not because they did anything wrong. And, you know, marriages sometimes break up uh, when, when you haven't done anything wrong. And I'm not saying you didn't. Uh, I'll, I'll accept your own assessment that you, you could have been a better husband and that you, you know, you take some blame for that. You might not be able to fix that. But I, but the, your wife leaving you is not necessarily God's doing. It's, uh, it's her doing. And uh, since it's not God's doing, it's not really up to him necessarily for her to come back. Uh, it'd be wonderful if she did repent and come back and you could have a, the kind of marriage that you now realize you should have had. Um, I, I say this as a person who suffered something very similar many years ago, almost 20 years ago, actually. It's been actually more than 20 years ago. I had a wife who left. Uh, I was doing everything I could to save the marriage. Uh, I, you know, I, I was faithful and there's, I was not abusive, anything like that. And she just left. And she left me with uh, four kids at home and took a lot, you know, most wow. of half our money and stuff. So I've, I, when you talk about that, I know how painful that is. But I'm, uh, and it's while I'm. Painful. How, how do I overcome, Steve? I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I can't yeah. live my life. How can I give glory to the Lord if my bones ache? And I am in turmoil all day from yeah. the minute I wake up, the minute I go to sleep. I understand. And uh, let me just say, how can you do that? I think by putting things in proper perspective, when bad things happen to me that I didn't bring on myself, um, I, I always figure there's a lot of bad things I did deserve that didn't ever happen to me. I mean, if you look at my whole life, I've, uh, I've, I've probably, I mean, I've done enough bad things that it doesn't appear that I suffered anything for that on balance i've probably had more blessings uh and and more mercy from god and more benefits than i deserve even if i have suffered some bad things that i didn't particularly deserve i have to figure that suffering is not something that challenges the suffering of the righteous doesn't challenge the goodness of god because the bible has a uh, a very thorough treatment of the subject of suffering in fact uh, I might just say this uh, because we're going to run out of time. Um, if, I don't know if you've been to my website, thenarrowpath.com, but I have a series of lectures called Making Sense Out of Suffering. And it does talk about what the Bible teaches about righteous people suffering. Uh, and or, or even if you're not righteous. I mean, I, you're not saying that you were righteous. You're actually saying you probably were at fault for that. And I'm not going to deny that. You might well have been. But you can't turn the clock back and go redo it. You repent and move forward. And if you say, well... I, I think my I made my wife. Uh, I think I made the marriage intolerable for my wife. That was a horrible thing. I need to apologize to her. I need to repent before God. But once I've done that, I can't. Un, I can't roll the tape backwards and make things run a different direction uh, from an earlier point. I just have to say, okay, this is what 
this is what my life uh, has become. Either either I've made it that way or some, in some cases other people made it that way. But it's what it is. And this is where God wants me to serve him. This is where God wants me to praise him. Remember when Job, his children died, his property was taken from him, he got sick, and he said, well, I, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, God's good no matter what happens to you. And none of us can really claim that we're so innocent that no bad things could ever should ever happen to us. We all have done bad things to other people that we didn't suffer much for. And therefore, on balance, we probably have suffered less than we deserve. But, but we sometimes suffer more than we deserve at that moment. But you know, if we're trying to keep a tally and say, okay, over on this side, I'm keeping track of all the bad things I deserve, and then over this side, all the bad things that have happened, and see if it balances out, we have no capacity uh, to judge those things or assess those things accurately. We simply have to say, God may be uh, uh, teaching me a lesson because I did some bad things. That's, then this would be the chastening of the Lord, and he wants me to learn that I won't do that again. Or maybe he's... Maybe he's testing me as a, as a righteous person like Job and testing to see if I'll still trust him when things really go badly. Now, um, th that sounds like, you know, a test that you, from your own standpoint, it sounds like you didn't pass that test, but you could still. I mean, uh, when things go badly, it's always tempting to say, you know, I'm angry at God for that or God's mad at me and therefore I'm not going to be serving him anymore. Um, that's exactly how Job's friends thought about the situation. Job didn't. Uh, so, uh, you know, let me recommend, brother, I, I'd love to be in touch with you more than I can be right here on the air. And I know you have to stay anonymous. But if you want to email me, steve at the com, we can communicate more. Uh, I'm, I'm running out of time very rapidly for this program, and I can't keep going on this. But let me urge you, go to the com. Look under the tab that says Topical Lectures, and you'll find four lectures there called Making Sense Out of Suffering. And I do believe those will answer some of those things. It won't make, it won't make suffering uh, in itself less painful, but it will, it's always easier to go through suffering if you kind of can, uh, you know how to harmonize that with, with your belief in God. And that's what this is, making sense out of suffering would be, you know, how do I make sense of the fact that you know, God is good and God loves me, and, and yet these things happen to me. That's what I think you probably uh, might benefit from listening to. But again, I want you to feel free to email me uh, to to follow up on this. Um, but we're we're rapidly coming on the end of the program, so I'm, I'm afraid. You know, when we come to a big subject like this, I get really nervous about. Oh, you know, I have a few minutes left. So I think the best I can do for you right now is just urge you to listen to those lectures and then get back in touch with me. Thank you very much, Steve. Okay, brother. I'd uh, yeah, I do want to continue to communicate. So, so do get in touch with me. I will. Thank you so much. Okay, Bye -bye. okay brother. God bless you. All right, uh, Laura from Little Rock, Arkansas. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Yes. Hello. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? I can. I can even tell you're from Arkansas by what I hear. Yeah. Oh, you think I really have an accent? Just a little. Oh, okay, little. All right, that's good. Okay, well, anyway, uh, I really like your program, and I've never called in, but 
I just, you know, listen to this 99.5 Face Talk network at some of the times. And anyway, I was listening to it a while ago, and I got tickled about one of the callers talking about the birds and, you know, and you're right about, you know, farmers don't like them. And then you think about the song, you know, his eyes on the sparrow and his eyes on you because he's still You know, Laura, I need to tell you, we're going to run out of time. Do you have a question for me? Okay, real quick. Uh, okay, I was going to say, all right, we're, I'm in community Bible study. We're studying Revelation this year, which I never have. Now, I've gotten, uh-huh. I'm overwhelmed. Uh, and one of the questions was, uh, first off, I wanted to go, I wanted to ask you, why do people hate Jews? I mean, I grew up, I guess, ignorant. I didn't know until college, like the name Cohen, C-O-H-N, is Jewish. I mean, I just didn't think that way. Right. Well, why do people hate Jews? Um, I've never been able to answer that myself because I don't know why anyone would hate Jews. Um, you know, hating Jews obviously is one kind of racism. I've never known why people hate, uh, why any people hate black people or Asians or, or um, uh, you know, Native Americans or Hispanics or whites. You know, I, I've never known why anyone would be hated because of the birth race they had. I mean, since a person has never had a chance to decide who their parents would be, their race is simply an accident of birth. I mean, looking at it secularly, I, I could say as a Christian, I could say it's providential. God wanted them to be of that race, and he had a purpose for them, and he's going to use them in that way. But, I mean, taking the whole, you know, the providence of God, just setting that aside, uh, whatever race you are is an accident of birth, just like whatever country you're born in or whatever era you're born in. Uh, why would anyone be blamed for that? Uh, it, it's it's just that I think there's far more irrationality in the human race than I than I usually would assume. I usually expect people to be kind of reasonable, kind of logical, uh, you know, a little more rational than animals. And many times people disappoint you in that respect. You have those expectations that they're smarter than uh, a dog or a dolphin, and it turns out they're actually less smart than one, and but morally so. Um, now, my thought is that people who hate any particular race, whether it's Jews or whites or blacks or any race, may have uh, been just taught by their parents that those people are bad. Now, how, how, where their parents were, probably from their parents. Well, where did it start? It probably started with some conflict. Uh, you know, if, um, let's just say you, you lived in the inner city, and you got mugged, and the person that mugged you is of a particular race, not your own, and uh, and you thought, I'm not going to trust those people anymore. Those people are bad people. Those people are muggers. Now, of course, it's ridiculous to, to judge a whole race by the actions of a few, but that's what people are always doing. I mean, that's what our country is doing right now about white people. White people are all white supremacists. They're all oppressors. You know, well, that's not really true. Some white people are, but... None of the ones I've known have been, and I've known a lot of white people. I'm 70 years old. I've, most of the people I've known have been white people, and none of them I know have oppressed anyone or or uh, been haters of people of other races. But, but I know there are some who are. But if the ones you meet, if you if the people you meet who are of another race in some way or another uh, give you a very bad impression of them, sometimes you associate that with, well, that must be because they're, they look different than I do, so... 
maybe maybe looking different means you are different in that way. And so I t- kind of judge all people to be that way. It's it's not a rational way to think, and no and no person who's got uh, an IQ higher than you know uh, thirty uh, would probably think that way. Though some choose to. Some people just want to be haters too. There's some people who just want to blame somebody else for whatever is going wrong. And it's not always the case that they'll blame people of a certain race, but that's one of the options. You can say, well, you know, the Jews, they, they've got all the power. You know, they, they, they're the bankers and they have the money and they control Hollywood and they control this and that and the other thing. And there are people who, you know, they, they interpret that as a, you know, there's a worldwide conspiracy and the Jews are in charge and they're, you know, they're nasty. Uh, they got nasty plans for us all and so forth. Well, I don't necessarily think that's true. But even if I did think it was true, that doesn't mean that the Jew who lives on my block is involved in any of that. In other words, even if you thought that people of a certain race uh, had some kind of a nefarious a secure, uh, um, conspiracy to imprison us all or to Im- impoverish us all or something like that. Now, I don't believe that necessarily. I mean, I do believe there's people like that, but I don't think they're all of one race. Um, so what? I mean, I mean, first of all, I'll probably never meet the ones that are doing that, and the, and the Jewish people I meet are not those people. So why should I hold them accountable for what someone else is doing? Same thing is true. You know, if you live in the inner city, and, and let's just say the crime rate is very high and, and a high percentage of the criminals are of a certain race, that you'd somehow assume that whenever you meet someone of that race somewhere else, oh, they must be bad too. It's just not, it's, it's irrational. And I think people who hate the Jews, it's an irrational thing. Now, some people would say it's a satanic thing. Some people would say that the devil hates the Jews because, uh, because Jesus came through the Jews. And that is a possibility, too. I mean, the devil hates Jesus, and, uh, you know, the devil may be a racist of the same sort. You know, Jesus gave me so much trouble, and he was a Jew. I hate all Jews. I mean, the devil. And he may be promoting that. Certainly all racism, in my opinion, is satanically irrational. But uh, there's many people who would say that uh, the satanic hatred of the Jews is, is particularly because of Jesus, having been a Jew himself. We're out of time. Thanks for calling. And uh, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg. We are listener-supported. Our website is thenarrowpath.com. Everything here is free. You can donate there if you want, but just take stuff if you don't want to donate. Thenarrowpath.com. Let's talk again tomorrow. God bless.